no one really knew if the video game business was even going to be around another six months. The whole concept of video games as a ongoing business was, you know, maybe going to be like a, a passing fad. And so we we didn't know until all of a sudden we kind of realized that, you know, I think it's probably around 1980, 1981, we said, you know, we've been doing this for several years and, and it's not going away. It just keeps getting bigger. Hello, my name is Roger Hector, artist and general manager of R&D at Atari and VP at Sente and Sega, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as always with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And arcade blogger, Tony Temple. Hello. Senior corporate executive, serial entrepreneur, automotive designer, fine artist. Roger Hector is not only a successful businessman, but a bona fide creative polymath. A long time ago, Roger sharpened his pencils at Atari Inc., working alongside co-founder Nolan Bushnell and creative director George Opperman on a vast range of video game projects. Hector became R&D manager at Atari before leaving to co-found his own games company, Vidya, with Howard Delman, now Wendy Smith, and Ed Rotberg, programmer of Atari's Battlezone. We talked to Roger about his early days at Atari, the groundbreaking but ultimately stillborn holographic handheld games console, Cosmos, his onward journey to Sente and then Sega, Michael Jackson, Sonic the Hedgehog, and, of course, Atari Hot Tubs. As always, thank you for listening. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net and should you be willing and or able, support the show by buying us a beer or two at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash tdepodcast. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. The Ted Dabney Experience Podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Um, you have a long and storied career in the industry, but let's start with you joining Atari in 1976. And uh, obviously, we're all about the proverbial golden age of video games here on this podcast, but we're, we're especially curious um about this time because the company was relatively speaking back then an unknown entity so so how did they go about finding suitable candidates roger given that finding people with specific experience with video games would probably have been uh, nigh on impossible at that time um how did that how did atari go about that roger and what what did they see in you that got you through the door well, actually, uh, you are completely right. There were no experienced uh, video game people at that time. Mm. Uh, but uh, I basically had moved from California, where I grew up, to Dayton, Ohio, uh, where I was working. But I realized that uh, I really wanted to go back to um, California 
Uh, and, and so after being in Dayton for a little over a year, I decided to reach out to an old uh, friend of mine who I went to college with, who basically was uh, uh, working there uh, at a company called Atari. I'd never even heard of it. Um, and and uh, he basically was running the, the industrial design department there. His name was Pete Takeichi. And I just hmm. reached out to him and said, if you know of any jobs available in California, he said, hey, why don't you come here? And so that was, uh, it sort of all just fell together in that way. They didn't seek me out in any other way. I just said, oh, that sounds great. So, uh, so that was my destination in uh, returning to California. I didn't know anything about video games. I literally... Right had maybe played Pong in a bar or something like that. But uh, that was it. Yeah. And you joined during a, a pivotal time in Atari's history, during uh, during Warner's acquisition of the company. So were you aware of any cultural changes at the company? Were those changes noticeable? Well, I knew that the Warner deal was underway and it was all, you know, that was going to impact things. Although I couldn't sense, being a brand new guy who walked in the door, yeah, uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I couldn't sense specifically what the uh, what the changes were, but I I got a pretty good feeling for it a little bit later. Yeah, sure. Any uh, any Nolan Bushnell stories you care to share with us? You know, Paul's um, partial to asking a hot tub themed question um, <laughs> from time to time, which um, I don't know for better or worse. <laughs> Always for better. Always, always for, for better. better. Yes. <laughs> Remember who has the edit button? That's what I always oh, say. That's good to know. But anyway, sorry. No, any 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 amusing um, Nolan Bushnell hot tub anecdotes? We, we we might as well get all this stuff out of the way at the top. <laughs> well, the the Nolan Bushnell hot tub stuff was was pretty broadly known uh, within the company, uh, and and uh, Nolan was, I mean, uh, he was a very uh, uh, friendly. Uh, eager to uh, figure out what can we do next, very entrepreneurial, uh, very excited to see uh, people's own individual creativity. And one of the things that I guess probably the, the way that I originally connected with Nolan uh, on a one-to-one -one basis was I was doing drawings of game ideas on, on a drafting table. Right. And that's where I worked uh, when I first got started and he would walk around after the, uh, everyone had gone home in the evening and, uh, he would walk up to basically my table. And if he liked something that was sitting there, you know, as a drawing or a sketch or an idea, he'd take it off my table and take it to his, his office, which was right around the corner. And, and he'd uh, look at it and think about it. And I'd come in the next morning and, uh, it would uh, my drawing would be gone, <laughs> and I didn't know where it went, <laughs> and so I I had to look all around, and ultimately I discovered that uh, Nolan uh, had had been collecting my drawings, and uh, when I when I approached him on it, uh, we, we both kind of laughed, and and it was it was a good introduction to us both uh, because he enjoyed the work that I did, and and it was uh, it was kind of fun to meet him, and and that turned into an ongoing pattern that went for years. So anyway, yes, that's that's kind of how I connected to Nolan originally. Mm. That's nice. Quite the compliment for a young Roger. 
Yeah, well, that was it. It, it was interesting, and and uh, one of the things that uh, that led to, of course, was uh, there were many instances that he and I connected over a game idea or a project idea, or later uh, when I left Atari, uh, he made a point of letting me know that he might want. Uh, to to have my company do work for him, and ultimately that's what uh, uh, that's what did lead to his acquiring my uh, game development company that I started after after working at Atari for several years, uh, and and he basically bought it. So that was another yes. connection that has really maintained us uh, through for a long time. Yeah, that's good. I mean and and we'll come to that later on in the podcast actually. Um but you sound like a very level-headed um gentleman Roger, so I'm I'm going to take a stab at I'm I'm going to guess you probably weren't uh, participating in any of the more um <laughs> hedonistic activities uh, that Atari was known for um in those early days. Well, I, I would say uh, being a, a a recently married uh, guy, it's a good enough reason. Young, young yeah. guy, I I didn't really know about a lot of that stuff until after it was sort of after the fact, and I heard about it, and I went, "Wow, okay, there you go." Sure, okay. So, Roger, you started out designing cabinet hardware. Um, how you know, quote unquote, scientific was the cabinet design process in those early days? You know, in terms of player ergonomics and the like. It, uh, I would say, it really wasn't. Um, like a formal engineering, scientifically based situation. There was a lot of, uh, 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 it was really left wide open for uh, people to creatively throw ideas out and yeah. try different things and new things. And there was actually quite a range of different types and styles of cabinets as well as games. Yeah, sure. Um, and again, what we... Um... I'm going to use the phrase again, but the, w what we refer to as a golden age on this podcast did see uh, an extravagant range of um, different arcade cabinet designs from the from the more mundane stand up and play to more extravagant cabinet designs like um, like subs, which was um, which was quite the uh, quite the beast, if I remember, <laughs> or if I remember anecdotally. Well, yes, there, there was actually a, a kind of an amazing variety of, uh, of of different cabinet and game ideas. Um, uh, ultimately it's, you know, the traditional classic video game cabinet was, you know, was made of particle board and had decoration on it, but was, uh, not particularly uh, dramatic in its presentation. But, uh, that was part of the challenge that, that we were given is, is to creatively come up with completely new things. And mm. that's why there were projects that I did that were, you know, basically started with with uh, a simulation of a race car. You know, that yes. was driving underneath a a, a giant projected uh, uh, monitor projector screen, and a lot of that kind of thing had never really been done before, or hardly, you know, since really, not very much. And of course, the arcade experience back then was far more than just sitting in front of a screen and, and playing a game. It, you know, things were less standardized. So it's, uh, it's always wonderful to see all those um, unique cabinet designs before, be, before things did kind of hit that jammer standardization. And, and even before that, again, at Atari, um, Roger, you were given the chance to work with George Opperman, obviously at Atari, who managed 
an incredible team of artists to, you know, create the iconic artwork that adorned some of Atari's pinball and much of its video game cabinets, to name but a few things. I mean, do you have any personal anecdotes about George and the ethos he instilled in his team? It really was a pleasure working for George. He was very professional, very creative. He knew when he, I mean, I knew that when he said, hey, can you make this uh, a little a little better, put some attention on that, uh, clean this up or whatever uh, from a design standpoint. He really, really knew what he was talking about and everyone respected him. He was, uh, you know, that that isn't always the case in, in the world of commercial art, but he was highly respected. I enjoyed working with him because I learned a lot. I, I I was one of the uh, you know one of the people in the in the pool the talent pool and we also had some amazing other talented uh, artists uh, people like Bob Flamati was uh, yes uh, yeah we, he and I uh, kind of paired up and and did uh, we shared uh, driving <laughs> to work because we lived close to each other and yeah. so we spent quite a lot of time and he was an amazing guy having you know literally created uh, many, many of the uh, sort of classic Atari images. He was uh, great. And, and I mean, I could go down and, and try and remember everybody's name, but I won't, I'll forget the important ones. But uh, no, it's, it was a very talented group and, and I considered it a great place to learn. Yeah, we, um, when we spoke with Evelyn Seto, um, or Evelyn Seto, I always get her name mixed up. It's easy for you to say kind of thing. <laughs> Evelyn, she, yes. Yeah, I think uh, she. I think it was um, Evelyn that told us that um, Nolan kind of looked up to um, to to George Opperman. Um, George obviously being a few years his senior, so I think he that seniority, albeit not in n- n- not within the company, but um, that those extra years probably aided that relationship. I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was the case that at least everyone that I knew of in the company uh, was very respectful of George, mm, uh, not mm. just because of you know his position or or something like that, but he was a, a genuinely nice guy, very very talented, and uh, could also was skilled at giving direction, art direction, which isn't always the case, uh, you know, and and. In his case, it it was very consistently good stuff. Yeah. Do you do you think his untimely death probably contributed to? Uh, I mean, because relatively speaking, compared to other graphic design heroes, if you like, is um is relatively unknown. Um, and I would say underrated. You know, compared with the um the breadth and uh, magnificence of his work. To be honest with you, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan too, and uh, uh, he. I know he had his own company uh, that he That's right. that he ran in the outside world, and then ultimately kind of traded that on to be full time, hundred percent Atari, and he he gave it his all, and uh, uh, he was very highly respected, certainly within our world, maybe not yeah. as acknowledged, uh, you know, but being the you know the creator of the Atari logo, uh, which everyone on the planet knows one way or another, it seems like anyway. Uh, that that kind yeah the of Fuji rec- the Fuji logo yeah yeah, yeah. he uh, uh, he he did quite a number of of uh, very memorable pieces 
and also helped a number of really talented uh, uh, artists get better or do something unusual or special. Yeah, yeah, sure. I guess I suppose that um, most of the contributors at Atari, including the designers in the early days, the game designers were um, were nameless, essentially, and people, I mean, the name Atari became synonymous with video games. So what hope did anybody laboring under that brand have for recognition? And, <laughs> and maybe that's just the way it is sometimes. I can relate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. It's being, a timeless story. Well, be, be, being one of those early designers, you know, game designers really were not uh, were not a whole category of, no. of employees in the early days. Uh, they were, you know, the the, the early days. Uh, typically, it would be a game programmer also designed the game, and and uh, uh, simply the graphic requirements and all that kind of thing was was uh, not as demanding as it is today yeah the the uh, the category of game design uh, as a job or a you know a specific uh, task master within a within a project was something that i kind of uh, uh, explored uh, I, I partially because i was I was one of the first guys to actually make a storyboard of of a game huh. idea because I could draw. <laughs> and what game? What game was that for, Roger? Oh, I've, there was there were a number of games. Um, sure. Let me think. Do you remember? Do you remember the first one though? What was what was your first storyboard? First storyboard that got produced as a game would be Warlords. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Available in two player or four player tabletop variants. Yes, and. Um, that was uh, there was one of the things that um, was kind of a uh, a pattern, a, a habit, uh, the occasional offsite brainstorm meeting that would take place a, a couple, two, three times a year at Atari. Is uh, all of the uh, coin op people would you know of different disciplines would would go uh, have a brainstorm meeting offsite, uh, typically like at a uh, Oh, uh, a reserved hotel space over by the beach or something. So it really felt different and relaxed. And we would go there and uh, uh, people would kick around uh, in in kind of large groups. Uh, People, individuals would step up and kick ideas around, present them. And and I I showed up with storyboards and big drawings. And and that was kind of new at that time. So anyway, that's that's... That was uh, a step towards making, uh, you know, advancing the idea of a game designer uh, yeah. to be a, a, uh, a based on visuals. And, and bit that, of a yeah. oh, sorry, sorry, no, no, Roger, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say a bit of a, an oddball anecdote um, slash question here, but just the other day I got in a an elevator, as you would know them in the states, but a lift over here in the UK and uh, it, it it just had a weird oily odor to it that took me straight back to a particular company um, I ran um, or co-ran I should say um, maybe about 15 years ago now do you do you ever have any of those moments Roger especially if I may be so polite in your uh, you know in the uh, in, in your advanced years compared to myself um, do you have any moments that are triggered by kind of like smells or, or like little kind of like memory moments that take you back to Atari. Gosh, there there would be a number of memories, um, particularly when they're 
I mean, to, to me, a lot of that kind of thing is triggered by uh, looking at a, a game yeah. and then thinking about, oh, what, you know, this would be like a new game uh, uh, and I'd get a chance to play it. And I go, oh, I remember this from as an idea that was originally exploited you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, or more, and that kind of thing uh, is, is. So you can you can like feel or see the DNA in in in, in older games, maybe. Yeah, and yeah, you, yeah, yeah, sure. Roger, I, I wanted to know whether the the smell of marijuana coming from underneath someone's cubicle <laughs> was something that reminded you of Atari. Well, you you would uh, you would have to say yes. There were certain uh, uh, certain triggers. That, yeah, that, that would be considered pretty common to that uh, that time period for sure. So decriminalization has brought back memory memories for you. <laughs> it's safe to say, um, Roger. Just one final thing, actually, before I hand over to um, to Tony. Tell me, um, do you have a, Obviously, you worked on these games. What what was your favorite cabinet design, uh, and was that your favorite game at the time? Are the two one and the same? Oh gosh. Um... The cabinet designs, I mean, I, I'm now just kind of shuffling through uh, a bunch of them. Your uh, mental Rolodex. Yeah. Or, or maybe on your desk indeed. Yeah. The mental Rolodex is, uh, is shuffling the cards. But as yeah. it turns out, um, there was a cabinet that I designed that um, uh, basically was patented. Uh, which was kind of unusual at that time. It was uh, called the multi-game cabinet. Yeah. And that was a, it was intended to not be an arcade uh, cabinet, but to go into uh, commercial locations that uh, would be like, you know, a restaurant lobby or like a train a, station you know, a or drugstore. Yeah. Some of those kinds of things, where the amount of square footage that it takes up in the uh, in the store uh, is a critical part of of making it work there. It can't be very big. Oh, sorry, I'm I'm actually remembering something. I was thinking something of uh, something completely different. Was it? Uh, and before you go on, guys, was it? Uh, did it was some huge Atari like train station behemoth some, with about 10 some consoles that would have four screens yeah but roger's stuff. talking about the opposite here isn't he i guess yeah. well there were there were two games that would fit into this one small square space right and, sure and okay. the players would uh you know had a, they had two different coin boxes yeah they were like side to side weren't they tony you've oh, you've shown me pictures of those before yeah I, I think roger you're talking about i think it was called game module and it had two monitors in one pointed upwards relatively low down in the yes and, yeah and that's then, it uh, the, the, there was a mirror um and the other one was higher up which that was it kind of pointed and, straight uh, out so so two players could face each other essentially Im, 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 imagine a a, a a i don't know a battle zone cabinet where players could play on either side of it so one at the back one at the front it was kind of looking Can I say, we now like know what tony's thing. specialist subject on mastermind will be <laughs> good man <laughs> <laughs> well as it turns out it was actually uh it had two completely different games and each game was played by uh, was maybe being played or maybe not being played there were two different coin boxes two different control panels and it sat in the space of about one game in a mm, you know right. in a storefront but it also was designed 
to have the games get swapped through time. Right. So that they would be updated. It was called the ultimately the uh, uh, it, it, when it was at Atari, it was the multi-game module or something like that. So this predated um, Nintendo's Red Tent and also Sente's own system, right? This, it, so this it became, and all all of this at Atari. Yeah, yeah. It actually became Sente's system. Oh, he's, right, right, right. Okay, got you. So that's the evolution. So, yeah, uh, yeah Atari was, uh, uh, well, that's a complex story, but basically, uh, yeah, it it was created by me and patented uh, by Atari. But uh, right. when when right. It, when I went over to Sente, uh, mm. it came with me. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's okay. part of the Sente system. Roger, did, did you have a hand in um, Atari's kiosk? theater the sort of you know the the, the the sort of triangular shaped thing that would all shove in together so you'd end up with six different games around in a circle you, oh you know I, yeah to? i know what you're i know what you're talking about um that one probably doesn't have my name on it okay, okay. but uh there were you know i only did cabinets actually for a relatively short period of time while i was there mm-hmm. because i started doing cabinets and then i went uh, with uh, George Hopperman and did game art for a variety of different types of things, uh, and then and then uh, ultimately uh, running research and development uh, for corporate R and D that included inventing whole new game types and game systems. So like so like George Roger, you were a, a creative polymath, I guess, or, um, or a re- Renaissance man. In in a sense, yeah, I I could do a variety. Of, I learned a lot of different things. Uh, yeah, it wasn't like uh, there was a lot of established uh, copying going on. <laughs> yeah, all of this. Stuff so you were doing illust- illustration essentially in graphic design as well as well as more painterly stuff, or were you airbrushing things? What was what was your um weapon of choice um so to speak i could kind of do it all i mean it, it was uh uh certainly sketching ideas you know quick sketches uh was a something that i was kind of trained uh to do but i could also do real polished renderings and and uh, uh illustrations of not just the game but the game in its own environment or something special yeah uh, yeah yeah yeah. i, I yeah. could do all that kind of stuff but but ultimately, uh, as an inventor, I was mm. inventing new thing, completely new things like like the Cosmos system, that sort of thing. Hi, Roger. Um, uh, Roger, somewhat unusually, as as you've been alluding to, you were able to make the transition from hardware design and and and, and cabinet artwork to actual design, uh, game design. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe you started with Battlezone, um, which was a project, obviously, as we know, led by Ed Rockbird, of course. But your interactions with him resulted in him being able to um, come up with the with the mathematics of the 3D world, which we gathered after talking with Ed at length about the design of Battlezone was was, was sort of something of a of a dark art. I just wonder if you can tell us more about this in um, as layman terms as you possibly can. Sure. Yes. Um, uh, well, I, obviously, I, I knew Ed, and uh, I would drop in on his uh, game development space that was in one of the labs. 
mm-hmm. uh, and and just see what he was doing. And he was doing all this interesting, you know, 3D stuff. There was new game hardware that had been created, sort of co-created, uh, that allowed for creating 3D uh, line drawings mm-hmm. on a, on a uh, TV screen. And the line drawings were were such that you had to define, in order to define what uh, was going to be drawn, you had to be able to establish the spatial difference uh, from the all of the connecting points of of uh, in the case of battle zone you know the tanks mm-hmm. uh, were the, basically I, I talked to ed and he said yeah can you go design some tanks for me and i said okay how do i do that because there was no computer graphic software that allowed you to do that at that time mm-hmm. that was before all the 3d software existed and so i did know how uh to to lay out three-dimensional drawings in in kind of what's referred to as a three-view drawing, a top view, a side view, and an end view of an object. Yep. And you know that's a that's an old architectural uh, skill that has been around for several hundred years. And and I got taught how to deal with that when I was in college. And so I said, well, maybe I can use that particular approach to define where all of the uh, spaces, all of the lines connect in in three space. And uh, so I gave it a shot. I basically did that on graph paper so that, uh, you know, the uh, even spaced cubes on a on a piece of graph paper would all potentially represent a connection point between these different lines. Uh, and then I just had to define where in three space they connect. And I know that kind of sounds weird, but uh, I gave it a shot and I laid out the, you know, the, the spaceships and the, and the, uh, the tanks and all of that uh, on graph paper. And Ed could define the connecting points of all of the lines uh, from essentially that top view, side view, end view approach. Mm-hmm. And that basically is, is, is what made it work. He, uh, I, I've sort of figured out how to define it. And then he uh, figured out how to push that into, uh, uh, onto a computer and animate those spots as they, those connecting points as they move around. And when you blow the tank up, it explodes into this whole elaborate, uh, you know, 3D exploding bits and pieces of the tank. Mm. You know, I, I I have to give that credit to uh, to Ed uh, because he's the one that really you know figured out some of those really rewarding details. So it's so it's fair to say um, the result of Battlezone is kind of smoke and mirrors based around mathematics. I probably haven't worded that very well. So you know, Ed Ed wasn't literally programming in three D, but the methods and the technique that you came up with to define those connecting points and where they would sit in space if you were viewing them resulted in the illusion of a three D world. Well, I, I I would say maybe something like what you just described. I can't <laughs> yeah, say that some, he didn't something, something program in three D, but right. I would say that he invented or created the ability to uh, right. connect three, you know, dots in three space. Sure. And, and by being able to do that, 
uh, I showed him how, you know, what, how to do some, some vehicles and some, you know, basically game graphics yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a, it was a team, you know, I mean, it was a, a mutual effort and, uh, I believe, uh, what Owen Rubin was also in that project, uh, you know, chipping in, but it, it really was Ed that, that mm-hmm. made the whole thing work. I sure. was just the guy that figured out how to make things look right. Yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah. So, were the principles of hardware and artwork design the same as game design, or, or would there be subtle differences? Uh, game design back in those days was a, com- a very different task than it is, you know, several decades later. Mm-hmm. Um, they were generally all very simple ideas that were uh, crafted to come together and experimented with when they were in the development stage. The, the, one of the big differences between game design today versus game design back then is that uh, teams today uh, are, are much, much larger <laughs> than they were back then. There, it would be kind of typical back in the 70s uh, and early 80s to have a game team uh, that would be maybe two, three, four people. That'd be it. That would include the game cabinet maker, <laughs> the artist. Uh, there'd be a programmer. Uh, there, you know, there would be a hardware engineer, uh, and that's kind of the basic group that uh, that might be augmented with a couple of extra people. But uh, there's no way you could, you know, you could even remotely approach doing a modern game with such a small team. Yeah, for sure. So to clarify, um, Roger, you designed rather than programmed when it when it came to working on games as opposed to hardware or, or art. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I, I I I tried to learn as much as I could about the hardware and the software, but that was not my my particular role. Mm-hmm. Uh and and I didn't. I, I was not writing code. I just never did. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about introducing the the concept of storyboards for some of the games you worked on, um, which certainly sounds like something um, unique for the time. What what did that add to the process? I mean, did it did it just sort of bring people like Ed on board with your vision? Uh, yes, I would say uh, the storyboard the storyboards act actually added a lot of. Uh, uh, potential uh, interest in the game idea, because without a storyboard, the game idea is just somebody talking, and and somebody talking uh, might be a very talented member of the of the team of the staff, but uh, everyone sort of has a maybe a different vision for what that you know what that verbal description is trying to deliver, and everyone can rally around a drawing and go. Oh yeah, I get this, mm-hmm. and it worked both ways uh, to the extent that um, I would be sitting around in the evening with a sketch pad in my lap, watching TV, uh, and and I'd and I'd sketch out some possible game concepts or or characters or ideas involved involving games. But I also had uh, I had occasions where an engineer would come over to me and you know in the office and go. Hey, can you know? I'm really interested in in doing a a biplane, a, a game based on biplanes, you know, World War One. 
uh, can you put together some biplane drawing ideas that would help me assemble that? And I'd go, sure, I can do that. So, so that would be a, sort of a different way that uh, I could contribute uh, to someone else's idea. Mm. You mentioned earlier, um, Roger, about the um, just to um, expand on this um, collaboration uh, theme. You mentioned earlier about the offsite brainstorming meetings, and and of course Atari's infamous black book of game ideas that um, we understand was occasionally sort of dived into. I, I don't know how how true that, um, that is, but I just wonder what recollections you have in terms of those meetings. And I, you know, I just wonder is is I I guess there's there's two types of um, designer so one would be someone who is genuinely collaborative and you know an open book very happy to share everything and let people you know add bits onto it or or whether there was a a, a certain amount of sort of politics and competition and well actually you know this is my idea and I don't I don't really want to put it in front of these 20 people around this room in a hotel in Malibu it's, can you can you recall how how that process were I mean was it genuinely collaborative um I, I would say it varied depending upon who the individuals were okay. right you know some some people would had a specific idea and they'd stand up and they'd talk about it and you know if others were interested but it wasn't what the and you know they if it if it didn't collaborate <laughs> right with with the original person that was throwing it out there uh, mm. you know, they would have, it, it didn't work. It just didn't happen until you could build an actual team around that one person's idea. In, mm. in, in my case, uh, I, I was maybe the opposite side of that. I, I just enjoyed hearing other people's thoughts and trying to come up with something that would be useful or helpful, or even just you know, an interim visualization of what it is that it ultimately would become. Right. I think that there, I mean, one experience that I had over and over again was was uh, uh, kicking around simp simplistic ideas that would uh, manifest or grow or mature into a more uh, complete game idea. Uh, and usually that did involve other people chipping in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It um, was fun. Yeah, I'll bet. I, I, you know, I, I wonder if we can talk about a, a real world example in um, Warlords. Um, you're known, of course, for uh, dreaming up the initial concept and idea for uh, what would become Warlords with a mashup of Pong and Breakouts, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> so what it was. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, let's take that as an example. So you sort of came up with the idea drew a few sketches how how would you have presented that to your colleagues at atari and 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 what would happen from there if if i as i recall in that particular case um i was preparing for a brainstorming meeting and uh, you know we said oh next uh you know next thursday we're all going to go to the beach and stay in a stay overnight and then brainstorm together and there was very little specific expectation uh around that you know what would happen there we all just sort of figured well we'll we'll see what happens and i brought in the case of warlords um i remember thinking that uh, i need to present an idea to a large number of people and if i did a little sketch on a small you know piece of paper 
uh, I wouldn't be able to show it. So I drew it out on a big piece of paper that I could hold up. Uh, and it was, you know, maybe maybe two feet by three feet. Uh, and I hold it up and I mounted it on a, on a board and uh, so that I could kind of show it and then point to here's what moves and here's how things evolve and here's what happens. And uh, uh, it was actually a very effective and unique way of presenting a game idea at Atari. And it got everyone's attention. Uh, interestingly enough, at that particular meeting, uh, it was regarded as one of the, you know, it was put in the stack of, oh, this is maybe a good idea to pursue at some point. There wasn't an expectation that that people were going to start working on it immediately. Uh, mm -hmm. But we wanted to have kind of a backlog of, of ideas. And, and this was one that was shoved into that category, which was fine. I didn't even know that the game started being made uh, over in the consumer uh, group first. <laughs> so ah, okay. it started in the consumer group uh, based upon the drawings that I did. Uh, but nobody even told me <laughs> that was actually going to happen until I saw it uh, uh, was actually being worked on. Oh, that's interesting. So anyway, I didn't I didn't really uh, work within the team to do it, but mm -hmm. there was another team that picked up the idea and pretty much did exactly what I I, I put down. So uh, that's just sort of the way that one worked. Sure. And I mean, looking back at that time, um, what was it like from your perspective to to see the company you work for, you know, go from relative obscurity when you joined to arguably the hottest tech company in America? Oh, it was dramatic. I mean, that part was dramatic. When I when I first started, uh, the the building that I worked in was uh, was in Los Gatos, and it was basically an old roller skating rink that had been converted into uh, offices. And Atari basically rented the building and there was, there was essentially a roller skating rink in the middle of the building that was being used as the construction area, the assembly area for coin-operated games. And the little, um, little spaces defined around the perimeter of the roller skating rink where normally you, if you were going to roller skate, you, you'd sit down and put your roller skates on in those little rooms. Mm -hmm. Those were offices. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, basically, there was, uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was an interesting setup. There were a few uh, official VIP kind of offices, but then there were most, most of the staff were not there. Uh, and, and it was, it was sort of interesting because it was unlike anything else, but shortly after, um, uh, after Warner Communications bought the place, there was, uh, a substantial amount of, uh, of money that became available, uh, through that to build a real campus sort of by today's standards, you'd call it a, a, a campus, which means there were several large buildings that included manufacturing op operations, engineering, you know, the engineering building, the, uh, uh, the executive building, and they were all in uh, Sunnyvale. And, and uh, that's, you know, a few miles away from where the, uh, you know, where that, that old roller skating rink was. But it was a dramatic shift and change in difference because it suddenly became much more sort of traditional and formal. Right. Uh, which was in its own way, um, 
sharpening the contrast between the sort of the personalities of the staff mm. at the time, which was, uh, you know, not real formal, uh, professional, you know, wearing a suit and tie kind of people that just didn't hardly exist at all. It was still the same, uh, pretty much hippie group that was now working in the, uh, in, in the new campus. Right. And, and, uh, even the engineering building had its own uh, hot tub. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that certain certain traditions uh, of the of the company were maintained. Can I just say, Roger, it's taken us a long time. Roger, it's taken us a long time to get to it, but you have mentioned hot tubs now. So please, can you tell us a bit more about that? <laughs> Even though you tried to fudge the issue earlier. We've clearly got there in the end. So were you in the hot tub? Were there hot tub rules? Please share. Um, I would say uh, that uh, in the engineering building, there was a a hot tub spa situation. And there was also, I mean, there were, uh, you know, uh, well, the facility was was open to all. and there were sort of rules that were not followed <laughs> so, in, in any way. You should be in politics, Roger. <laughs> you're, you're on the wrong podcast. Sorry. That's all good. We understand. It's a familiar theme. Well, it was uh, indicative of wanting to keep the uh, uh, kind of the spirit alive mm. the, of the creative uh, uh, young person's spirit that was a little bit revolutionary and and uh you know trying to trying to do completely new and different things uh outside of of somehow a lot of formality of of business operations you could go over to the corporate executive building which was right across the street from the engineering building and you wouldn't see anything like a hot tub uh but the the engineering part of it was uh you know the creative part of mm. the business mm. and the, you know there were there were factories uh, there were several buildings and uh later in my experience there we even were trying to start uh things that would be considered very secretive and very revolutionary like the laser hologram things and we couldn't do that in the in the engineering building so we we uh we rented another small building just several blocks away, but no one knew about it and no one had access to it except for like me and a couple of other people. Oh, interesting. So that was uh, that was something that wound up just sort of evolving based upon the ideas for new games that really or new things that couldn't be built, uh, you know, in the in in the the campus. Yeah, you're alluding there to the Cosmos project, presumably. Roger? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Interesting. Um, I wonder um whether whether you got a sense in the early eighties, sort of eighty one, two and three, um, perhaps a sense of blase from Atari that, you know, anything they put out in the coin op world was gonna be a hit. Do you do you think it sort of got to that point? Well, uh, to some degree, the original game set that came out of Atari was a lot of guesses as to, well, let's try it and see, you know, see if it gets popular. Mm-hmm. And so 
and, and there were you know there were hits and misses left and right mm-hmm. in the in the original coin op world uh anything that was new and different would get played a few times whether or not it would turn into a massive hit depended on on a lot of other things but there was you know we, we were cranking out one new coin operated game every month and you know that's that's a production rate that uh uh you know would be quite literally impossible you know today for sure mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was it was interesting, but it was also a time I remember there was a time when, at least in my early days, no one really knew if the video game business was even going to be around another six months. Mm -hmm. The whole concept of video games as a ongoing business was, you know, maybe going to be like a, a passing fad. And so we. We didn't know until all of a sudden we kind of realized that, you know, I think it's probably around 1980, 1981. We said, you know, we've been doing this for several years and and it's not going away. It just keeps getting bigger. And that revelation, that realization that, oh, this might actually be around a year from now Mm. uh, was was something that kind of dawned. I know it dawned on me because I wasn't counting on it. I (laughs) I wasn't counting on video games as being something that, uh, you know, would necessarily be around a year from now. Mm. I, I mean, it must have been an incredible time, um, you know, as you say, you know, the, the with the factory pump, pumping out a machine a month or a machine every couple of months, um, Atari riding high, you know, asteroids selling over 70,000 units, Battlezone being a hit, Missile Command being a hit, Centipede being a hit. And you were working with, um, you know, some of the greats there at the company, um, the Oppermans, the Toyers, the Rockbergs, and the and and the Logs. I mean, it, you must have been constantly jumping out of bed every morning, feeling you know invigorated and and, and in, inspired to sort of constantly push the envelope. I I would have to agree with that. I mean, I really enjoyed it mm. when I when I first uh, agreed to take the job. I thought maybe you know I'll. I'll because they were willing to pay for my move. <laughs> okay. That was that was the criteria I was looking for. Uh, and so they, but it wasn't that they were going to move me. They would just pay for whatever it cost me to move myself in a truck. But anyway, that was, uh, uh, I had very low expectations. But after spending, you know, several years and learning from and meeting, you know, all of these uh, amazing people, uh, it it was very exciting. It was exciting all the time. Uh, there was there was a, a kind of a continuous challenge to come up with new ideas, and and my role in that process uh, sort of became a little bit recognized, which kind of put me in the in 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 a role where I could I could try things mm-hmm. and get people to work on them. Which you know, in the beginning, it was whatever I could come up with on my own, but but uh, I got the help of a lot of uh, very talented people, and and uh, uh, yes, it it evolved very significantly in a in a exciting sort of positive way. Hi, I'm Alex Crowley. The Ted Dabney Experience is brought to you in association with the Arcade Archive classic arcade museum here in the UK. We're open every weekend in Stroud, Gloucestershire 
where you can get hands-on with some of the greatest titles from the golden era of video gaming. Check us out at the arcadearchive.co.uk for more information and to book tickets. Hello, Roger. Um, this podcast is focused on, on arcade games, but we love a good secret, especially one that's about something as innovative as the Cosmos. So perhaps you could just tell our listeners, um, what was the concept behind this handheld, the Cosmos? Uh, the concept, I would have to say, originated uh, with Al Alcorn's Mm-hmm. personal interest in holography. Okay. Now, Al, uh, I did not work for Al up until the point in time where uh, we had kicked around some ideas of what can you do if you could reproduce holograms uh, economically. And Al had some ideas and, and a couple other, there were a couple other people there that had some ideas and, and we all uh, sort of brainstormed a bit and then said, well, let's let's see if we can make this. And so Al uh, arranged to uh, move me from the design world or, or the, the art and design world into the R&D world and basically uh, uh, his world, which was based on holography, but we had to come up with some ideas to turn uh, how to make holograms reproducible economically in such a way that we could create a game system that had holographic displays. It does seem, uh, this is the early 80s, to try and create from scratch a holographic handheld console seems ridiculously ambitious. I I mean, didn't (laughs) didn't anyone go, this is madness? (laughs) That was the beauty of it. It really was madness. But cool. Al had the uh, the prestige, the prominence in the uh, in the company, and Atari was being extremely successful. They were making a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, Al was given a free, you know, a free shot at coming up with completely new things, and this was one that uh, he pulled me into, and uh, uh, there were a couple of scientists that really? uh yeah. yeah that he brought in that al brought in uh that knew the ins and outs of uh, holography at a technical level and they also worked out a system for embossing holograms that had never been done before uh holograms had always been processed by you know kind of like a like a an early photograph right uh and and so uh that was a process that would not work for mass production. Ah, so the, the, uh, the key to getting started was this uh, process for embossing them, uh, which allowed for basically printing them, em- embossing them in a way that they could, uh, uh, we could put multiple images on top of each other. Ah, and was that in? That was important for showing some sense of movement of animation. Is that is that the yes, key element? Yes, yes, yes. And and having different uh, different image screens available to the player to see, depending upon 
you know what kind of game you're talking about and you've, you've uh, mentioned uh, you've mentioned there were scientists involved let's talk about you though you're you're yeah. our guest is that what was your role were you involved with making the actual models that that were then photographed to be made into holograms uh that was me yes right tell us about that well um there were we we wanted about uh 10 or 12 games to be able to launch it as a system so we had to come up with 10 or 12 game ideas and the basic uh structure of the of the mechanical device was a plastic box that you could that would hold uh, uh a little uh you know a single pc board that actually had all of the games programmed onto it so there wasn't a a game cartridge that included any electronics at all. So what happened is uh, all of the games were programmed in and and I was one who kicked in the designs uh, for, gosh, uh, most of them. Wow. Uh, and and uh, we had a football game and we had a basketball game and we had a, a, a Space Invaders game and That's a cool. Superman game and and uh a superman game so did you yes. have to did you have to make a little model of superman yes <laughs> i was the one uh that had to design and fabricate and make all of the models the three-dimensional models that would ultimately be uh imaged uh with the la- with a very powerful laser uh and and uh, that uh that was my task so i did i made two images for each game or two models for each game and uh that was a big task and there's a lot of a lot of uh, doing that but yes i had superman models and monster models and i love this and again when when people say modeling in terms of video games they often think you know on a computer screen but no 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 you literally made little yes. models out of, of, of plastic of papier-mâché what were you using all all of the above oh, right. <laughs> and sticky tape and glue was it yeah well well the one thing that one of the tricky the trickiest thing about building the models was that uh the exposure time of a laser took uh several minutes and if there were to be so the model had to be have a laser shot at it for several minutes and if the model moved in any tiny, tiny way, uh, that part of the image would disappear from the hologram. Ah. And so the materials that the models were made out of could not move in any way. And we're talking about the the minimum or the maximum uh, movement that could be tolerated by the laser was a quarter of a wavelength of light. Okay, that sounds small. I'm guessing. I'm thinking that's, that's small. That's very, very small. <laughs> right. Okay, so you had to build these things knowing yes. that they had to stand perfectly. I've got to ask this because we, we love any kind of artifacts. I don't suppose you've still got these these little models somewhere in your attic, have you? I, You know, uh, I have in my hand. You've got Superman in your hand. That's, that's well, wait image. a minute. i got to look. Who do I have here? This is a hologram that was used for Space Invaders. Wow. So I'm aware that we're, we're a, um, yes, a podcast, not a, a... But this is... I just love the fact that they still exist. What, what amazing bits of history. So can you talk us through? I can, I can tell you... Uh, I, the actual model is not here. I have a roll 
of hologram images. Oh, oh, that was actually taken by that. It was actually produced. Uh, this happens to be the uh, the Space Invaders' role, uh, and and the real. Uh, I guess a sad reality is that the images are quite spectacular but they only show up in a very precise geometric way. Right. Okay. And if you look at it, you can barely, I mean, if it's like it's sitting here in regular light in the room, you can barely make out what the image is. It has oh, to be okay. lit I from see. a very but specific But it's still angle. an amazing bit of history. Let me ask you a couple of more things. I mean, it, it, this wasn't just a sort of abstract concept. You did produce a working prototype and took it to a trade show, as far as I know. Tell us about what the reception was when you, you literally showed this thing working. Oh, this was this was uh, amazing. We we pretty much, you know, the the um, Al Alcorn group that put the, that created this and put it together, um, we did do all of the production um, uh, tooling to injection mold everything. And with the labels and the stickers and the and the buttons and all the things that go into making something like that, we're all production ready. We took it to the um, Toy Fair, which is the big uh, uh, commercial toy uh, industry trade show that takes place in New York every year. And no one had ever seen anything like it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And... and uh, it uh, it it shocked everyone really. It was a total surprise. It had not been pre, uh, uh, you know, announced in any way. So it was something that was revealed there at the toy fair, and we took a year's worth of production orders on the spot. Amazing. And of course, you know what the next question is. But we never got to play it, did we? So <laughs> what you've? It's a fantastically innovative product. It's a working prototype, and you've got a year's worth of orders. Roger, what went wrong? What happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great question. Um, we, meaning Al and uh, myself and uh, Harry Jenkins, who was part of the team, and you know, we had all we were all in in uh, uh, New York at the Toy Fair, and, and we basically came back glowing yeah. with the premise that we knocked it out of the park you know we created we created an amazing thing that that would sell like crazy because uh, we sold a year's worth of production and uh, when we got back we <laughs> we wound up uh, ray kassar who was the ceo of atari at that time oh yes basically called us into his office and said guys i uh we've made a decision <laughs> uh -huh. that the production demands for Atari 2600 games mm. was at the maximum production capability. And they had to make a decision that if we introduce Cosmos at the same time, it's going to reduce uh, the production capacity of the, uh, of the 2600 game system. And so they made the decision to hold off on producing Cosmos for now mm. and put everything into uh, the 2600, which was also uh, wildly in demand. Well, yeah, the, you, the Space, Invas uh, Space Invaders licensed cartridge had just come on the market. And I know it was exploding. I, just so sad, though, because, I, I mean, things how history might have been a little bit different there if there'd been a holographic 
console well, in the early 80s. It could have been so different for Atari. That's what I thought. I mean, we, we all had great confidence that this was going to take off. Now, I should add one thing, which was that we did not consider Cosmos to be a competitor to the 2600 no. in any way, because the way it was made, it was, a, uh, it was certainly cheaper to make, uh, and it was actually in what would be considered at that time a category of, uh, uh, of a toy as opposed to a game system. Now, it was a game system because we had 10 different games that would uh, plug into it and play, but it was, uh, it, it was priced uh, as, a, as a toy, essentially. Uh, it, was, it was less than half the price of the, uh, of the 2600, and uh, uh, the game cartridges themselves were, they were incredibly inexpensive to make, and so they, we could sell them for you know, almost nothing, uh, just, $10, that's, that's something just, like that. So, when you see that the success that Nintendo had with handhelds later in that decade, Atari could have beaten them to that. Oh, oh, yeah. oh what could have been? Um, now, not too long after that, Roger, you leave Atari. So I suppose, are those two events connected? Was it, was it your disappointment with Cosmos that made you think, I've had enough of this? Uh, yes. The simple <laughs> okay, answer so... there is... <laughs> Right. As we we put everything we had into it, and we thought we'd done it as good as it could be done, and and since it didn't happen, we said, well, let's go outside, and and do something else. Okay, let's pick up that. So, tell us about setting up your project, Vidia. Uh, this was you, Ed Rotberg, and Howard Delman. Uh, Howard since transitioned is now called Wendy Smith, but back then it was you, Ed, and Howie. Tell us about your partners there. Were you, were you each sort of bringing something different to the table? Oh, yes. Well, one thing is we'd all worked together previously, and we all respected each other. And Ed was, you know, an amazing coder that obviously I'd worked for or worked with, you know, uh, previously. And, and, and Howie at the time was, um, he was both a software and a hardware guy. He designed uh, the, uh, uh, the hardware for Battlezone, I believe. Yeah, and Asteroids before that, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And and I had, you know, I did all this variety of things, and basically um, the three of us got together and said, let's, you know, let's go make a game uh, production company. We were originally anticipating it to be CoinOps, yeah. and uh, we wound up, through time actually doing some game some 2600 game cartridges in addition to the coin ops but i knew some people that uh in, in the work that, that basically were were d gottlieb company which was a chicago-based coin op and and pinball company and and uh, uh i knew them and we were able to put together a contract to do a game development with them uh very quickly so we were able to start uh, almost right away upon leaving Atari, and this is this is with Gottlieb, of course. So yeah. this, um, so this is the idea was to produce third party games for the arcade industry, perhaps in the same way that Activision had gone on to do it for the for the home market. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, Chief, did you sense? You just mentioned Gottlieb there. Did you sense that you know there was a market for this that companies like Williams, Gottlieb, possibly even Atari themselves would contract you to make a game externally you got some yes. faith in that yes that was we had well 
we we were maybe naive too, but oh. <laughs> but okay. we we um, uh, we we thought that we could put it together. I was I was in charge of making the deal happen, uh, which I did, and so I came back from Chicago with a contract and and essentially money, <laughs> yep. and and okay. so uh, we were able to get started, and we. We also hired a couple more people. We expanded Vidya to include other talented people that we uh, had known uh, that we could sort of bring on board. And, and uh, we wound up taking on several projects. Um, so it, it was a success, a surprisingly successful process. Yeah. I would say that one of the Nolan stories I could tell you uh, included Nolan... Um, Nolan bought a building in the general areas where Atari was, and it was an old beat-up building, but he was planning to use it as a foundational location to start other businesses. Okay. And so uh, there was nobody there, but at right at the time that we were leaving Atari uh, and starting up uh, Vidya, uh, Nolan said, hey, if you want an office, you can have one for free in this old beat up building that I have. Oh, so he was, was he sort of, I was going to use the word, was he grooming you? But that makes it sound a little bit um, sinister. I meant that he could see the potential of yes. you three producing yes. coin upgrades. Can I just ask you more about the Gottlieb deal? Is sure, that, sure. Um, is that so, I mean, can we, it's a long time ago, so can we talk money? I mean, how much money did they say? Here, have this and and produce a coin op for us. Gosh, um, I'd love to throw an answer out there. I'm sitting here trying to remember uh, how you know what what did that cost? It was obviously a lot less than that kind of stuff would cost today. <laughs> yes, obviously. Um, but it was a significant. Are we talking of tens of thousands of dollars? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. It was tens of thousands of dollars. Was this to was, produce one? Video was it sort of a one game deal or yeah it was a one game deal and uh, I'm sitting here trying to remember the name of the game <laughs> oh I was going to say there was a game that you started making yes then. yes there was a game now it wound up I don't know if I can remember oh it was called Gridley Grid ah I have and heard Gridley of that. yes it turns out the Gridley didn't get produced it was another project that didn't get produced ah, so for you, for completely uh, other types of reasons but uh yes Gottlieb uh, uh wanted it and then they didn't want it and then they wanted it and then they didn't want it and basically it turned out that uh, uh they were entitled to it but it was up to them to do something with oh, it and they man. decided to do something else so okay so Gridley never got made Okay, so hang on. From all this sort of very hopeful, we've left Atari, we've set a company up, we've got office space, we've got a deal from Gottlieb. Things start to sound like they're not quite working out as you'd hoped. Now, is this the point that, that Nolan steps in, almost like the cavalry arriving? You know, your your timing is really good here <laughs> because that sort of was the case. Although, I'll I'll add another piece to it. Yeah. There was a time, even though uh, our existing, you know, a specific deal that we had wasn't working out, this the game industry was still booming, and we had uh, two interested parties that wanted to buy Vidya. Oh, okay. One was Coca Cola, right? <laughs> of all things, okay. Uh, massive company, 
no experience whatsoever in games. Did they want to get into the games business? Well, yes. I presume that's why they wanted to buy you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they were they were they were considering that and they were approaching us and wanted to see what kind of a deal they could make with us. And and the other one was Nolan Bushnell uh under the under the corporate guise of Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater. <laughs> okay. So you went for pizza, not Coke. Is is that what we're saying here? That was right. it. That okay. was it. We went for we went for pizza, not coke. We uh... <laughs> right. So suddenly Nolan, of course, you've worked with before, and he has got it. Unlike Coca Cola, he has got a track record. Yes. But then that goes that goes awry as, as again. Um, it, I'm all a bit confused actually about this. Nolan's big idea for Sente was this Sente system. But hang on, can we go back into the seventies? Didn't you just allude earlier in this interview? that actually you would have this idea of having, you know, um, a coin-op where you could easily change games rather than having to build a bespoke cabinet for every new game. Are you telling me that that was your idea from back in the 70s? Well, that was, yeah, that was the same, essentially the same or very similar situation. I will say that Nolan was a supporter of that idea back in, in the Atari days. And... He really wanted to do it uh, badly, uh, such that he he bought Vidia uh, partially to be able to do that. And so, yeah, it's it was a kind of a rebirth of that same project idea. Uh, and and you know what the heck we knew how to do it because we'd done it before, and and uh, uh, it turned out to be successful on the part of uh, you know as a product that was ultimately manufactured well by by Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah. Or the Sente division of Chuck E. Cheese. Uh it was we were called Sente Technologies. Uh but then when Nolan started or Chuck E. Cheese started having financial problems, which is a whole entirely different story. Yeah, I hear I hear the Pizza Time Theatre run out of dough. You see what I did. That, oh my it? word. Can oh. that's yeah, that's in. Thank you. All right, let's let's carry on. So yeah, carry on, long. Roger. That's a good bun. <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's been a long time since I've heard that one, but yeah, that was exactly right. They ran yeah. out of time. Um, yes, and, do carry on. And right. So, they, yes. Nolan decided to sell uh, the Sente Technologies division of Pizza Time Theater to Bally. Right. Okay. So, and, yeah. and Bally loved it and just bought it right so one day we're working for pizza time and the other day we're working for Bally. and of course Bally has got you know a a, a, um, a position in the video game industry they've got a track record so were you actually quite pleased or a little bit of trepidation maybe you're losing your independence being bought by such a big company well the 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 one thing the the quick answer to that is yes there was a little <laughs> trepidation there because the deal was put together very quickly and basically around money right but it was also the case that bally really wanted uh some new fresh creativity that we were able to bring with us and bally being based in chicago and and with us being based in california in silicon valley uh it was a um we had enough space between us that they didn't oversee every single thing we did. So we did have a fair amount of independence and we were able to do pretty much what we wanted to do. Right. Well, for I, a while. 
Ah, <laughs> <laughs> ah, there was the kicker there. But let, well, I, I mean, can we talk about some of the games? Because um, you know, I, I, I've been guilty in the past of perhaps skipping over some of the games that Sente did because let's be honest, they you know were not perhaps as fondly remembered as some of the games that you worked on at Atari. But you were, you were not short of interesting ideas. Let's start with one of the early releases, which was Snake Pit. Um, I really like the idea of the sort of the cracking whip and the wiggling snakes. Uh, was this a bit of a homage to Indiana Jones, perhaps? Well, I'd say there might have been some inspiration there. <laughs> uh, I, I, would, <laughs> I would also say that the gameplay turned out to be a hit. And we did actually very well with Snake Pit. Uh, it was... Uh, I would I wouldn't say that all 100% of all the Sente games were, you know, massive hits. For sure that was not the case. But Snake Pit was was certainly one of them that did very very well and and uh you know, everyone was pleased with Snake Pit. Okay. Another one I'm interested in is uh, Night Stalker, which involves driving, <laughs> a well-established genre, and yes. shooting, you know, a, a light gun kind of game, but mashing them up together. Um yes. was that was that was the idea like this is going to appeal to fans of both genres here? Uh, yes, it was a it was a completely unique approach uh, with controls uh, that that uh, players really enjoyed. That too was also a, a a pretty much a hit game for us. That was a that was a Dennis Coble uh, design. Yes, it's it's interesting the people that you got working at Ascenti because Dennis Coble, Owen Rubin, and you'd already got yourself and Ed and how. So did it feel a bit like you were trying to put the old Atari gang back together? Oh, over and over again. Yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh okay. Um, you mentioned unusual controls there with Night Stalker with a steering wheel and a and a gun. Um, here's a game that. I bet our listeners perhaps won't have heard of, but I was fascinated by stomping a game that you play with your feet. Um, where did that idea come from? Because it, it certainly had legs. Hey, I've done it twice. I've done it twice. <laughs> but no, tell us about the idea of stomping. It's going to be a hat trick soon, Paul. Was, was that is another one of their games. Very good. Um, what? Um, tell us about the idea of controlling a game with your feet. I mean, that seems very uh, out there thinking. Well, you know, it, it was an original creative idea that, that popped out of the group saying, hey, let's build a, a matrix control board that would lay on the ground in front of the game and you'd have to step on the different squares. They would light up individually when you, when you stepped on one and it would cause essentially... Uh, there were there were let's we'll just say there were things like bugs walking around on the screen right. on a right. on a grid and if if it uh, stepped on a on a square that you could step on with your foot it would squash them. That I, just, it's great. I mean, of course, this is years before the dancing stage games I, I was became just, popular, so it was really ahead of its time. I, I was just going to say that the, that was a control. That that matrix uh, ground, mm. you know, sitting on the floor matrix uh, was a control that was actually anticipated to be used for other games that, you know, like ultimately became popular, very popular. The dancing ones and all that kind of stuff was uh, we were we were very much ahead of our time. But that was something that uh, yeah. we had done before. That's amazing. One more of those. Uh, and it's Shrike Avenger. 
which looks like a major engineering project. You, the player kind of sits in this thing, but it also looks like a complete health and safety nightmare. What what are you, your memories of, of creating that game? This one, yes, it was uh, it was a you know a, a space fighter simulator that you would sit in uh, and you would uh, you know, climb into a seat and you'd grab the controls. And it was a basically a motion control base that would lift you up off the ground and you know your 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 vessel, your vehicle, and then it would drop you down and it would angle to the left and angle to the right and and it went through a very dramatic uh, series of physical movements that was extremely entertaining to the uh to the kids that wanted to play it yeah i bet it yeah. was it was very popular however <laughs> ah yes this this one was it was a great idea but it also needed quite a bit of uh, engineering and engineering refinement just to keep it from stopping working right there's a lot of moving parts i imagine it's it's a lot of moving parts and a lot of physical weight attached to it and a lot of momentum and uh we had to tell you know we basically that the arcades that that carried it loved it except they were also a little bit paranoid of <laughs> other kids coming around and and sort of hanging off the side of yeah. the cabinet killing a child around. they were worried about yeah. killing children yeah, that understandable I, concern you hate when that happens so, <laughs> yes, yeah. that was bad for business um, yeah. <laughs> now look despite all these genuinely innovative ideas and it's interesting how a lot of them we can see how they were developed by other companies in the future you really were ahead of the curve there but despite all these interesting ideas i mean senti as a company never really fulfilled its potential roger you were there what 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 did go wrong there would you say well it uh it was exciting and interesting and a lot of fun to do all of these different things. One of the things that we were sort of up against was that eventually, uh, as time went by, um, Bally wanted, we, we didn't have the political, we, we were uh, separated from the main corporate entities enough uh, to be able to do what we wanted to do, but we were also uh, at a disadvantage of not having the uh, direct political connections to the power brokers in the corporation. And if I were to say this kind of politely, it it was the case that the leaders of the Bally organization uh, considered us to be competition. Oh, okay. And because of that, uh, they managed to force us to shut down our own manufacturing operation in the West Coast and use their manufacturing operation back there. Oh, so suddenly and you people, really are losing your independence now then? Well, we totally lost it to the extent that uh, we suddenly discovered that uh, some of our customers were complaining about uh, the the game not working, you know, reliably. Mm, yeah. And we'd say, well, why is that? What went wrong? What happened? You know, because we were obviously very concerned about something like that. And it all turned out to be games coming from the Chicago factory uh, sort of stopped working. Right. And so that was at, at a point when when that just became kind of impossible to deal with. Uh, we we decided that was it. 
So, Roger, you leave Sente in '87. It sound it sounds. Was there another motive? Um, the the leave. Basically, it was the case. I mean, this is this is boring for listeners, but uh, I had a, a a contract that was you know that expired, uh, and I had the opportunity to renew it, but uh, basically, all of the the. You know, Howie, Ed, and myself all decided no, we we don't want to renew the Bally contract. So yeah. we were able to just step away, uh, and and we all went off to do other things. Yeah. So it was uh, it was sort of time. I think everyone felt it uh, to you know to move on and do something else. We'd really been through the you know the ups and downs of of business and of entertainment and fun. And I'd I'd love to say, hey, it was nothing but fun, but no, the reality is it's, it's a business, yeah. and and uh, you know there were good times and not so good times. But I think looking back overall, I have very very positive uh, uh, memories of of all of these uh, projects and the people that were all amazing to work with and very creative and and yeah, we we were able to do quite a number of things that had never been done before, which is, you know, that was special. Yeah, sure. And you initially go on to join EA, Electronic yep. Arts, and you were involved with um, some of their big name sporting franchises, you know, working with stars like John Madden, Michael Jordan, yep. Mario Andretti, if I'm yep. pronouncing yep. that correctly. Right. Just, yeah, right. Okay, so just how important was it to get big names like that on board in terms of of a success of a game, I'd imagine it's everything for EA. Well, yeah, EA was uh, was in a different mode. Uh, it was the case with with Atari that uh, it was very much focused on creating things from scratch, and EA was uh, a very different uh, focus, business focus, and and uh, really EA created the opportunity to uh, you know have celebrity driven titles yeah it's the entire remit isn't yeah, it in the first yeah. place yeah. and and yeah. uh and yeah certainly the sports side of it was that was the case they also uh as part of their concept as a corporation trip hawkins who was you know the founding ceo and was my boss when i worked there uh was, mm. was you know a great guy but his philosophy was uh, to help promote game developers like rock stars mm. and nobody ever did that at atari mm. <laughs> game developers mm. were never were never named celebrities but but uh you know at ea uh, they they had uh, several uh, groups that were you know essentially presented and marketed and promoted like rock stars and and that was a totally different sort of thing and and uh, ea was a very different company uh, I will say it was another amazing sort of learning experience because it wasn't the same as Atari or the coin-op world. It was all consumer, uh, uh, you know, PC, basically, PC and Mac uh, and Commodore 64. And, you know, the, the hardware yeah. platforms yeah. Were, were totally different than what we'd been, uh, I'd been working on before. Uh, but it was interesting. So kind of the inverse of Atari in some ways, though, where perhaps the boss wanted to be the rock star. This was the opposite way around. Well, in a sense. You might say. 
I, I'll, I'll tell you a very quick story. Um, it was the case that when I was at EA, Trip Hawkins uh, asked me, he said one day, he says, you know, uh, 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 Nolan Bushnell, right? I said, yeah, I know Nolan. Yeah. And uh, he says, well, maybe what, how about if you arrange for us to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting? And I said, sure, I'll call Nolan. And uh, bottom line is I, I, I set up a, a meeting uh, a first kind of handshake, nice to meet you kind of meeting between Nolan and Trip, and I just sat in the background because I drove Trip in my car uh, to this meeting to Nolan's office, and I sat and listened to Nolan pitching uh, Trip on game ideas that he had had, and <laughs> I I I just stayed quiet because I wasn't. I mean, it was the meeting between those guys, but Nolan was using drawings that I had created and, and had signed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Interesting. Anyway, okay. uh, it, it did not necessarily manifest itself that one meeting into, in, into something special, but uh, it did, I did have the sort of the good fortune and opportunity to work for uh, some very independently of each other, creative, talented, uh, able, uh, uh, people of the game industry that have you know gone on to do major stuff yeah for a moment there i thought you were gonna tell us an anecdote about yet another person beating nolan at his own game go <laughs> but you didn't no no no, no <laughs> um no, no. yeah that's what i had in my head that's really interesting though and, and you left ea um and eventually you um eventually found yourself at sega yes among other places can you can you tell us if you had much involvement with sega's arcade division um i did have some connection actually most of what i was uh when when i when i worked at sega i was um uh kind of the head guy of what was called the sega technical institute which was their some of their top people in the whole company internationally were all working on things like Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. And the um, uh, I did get a chance to go to uh, Japan and meet the uh, coin-op team and see what they were working on, you know, the teams, and see what they're working on. And, and we made some connections there. And, and eventually uh, we... We uh, we did bring a uh, one of their teams to the United States to STI to do uh, uh, to do a coin op game uh, that was targeted for the American market, but was actually uh, totally produced by the uh, by the Japanese team that came over to America to to get the flavor, you know, the the, the opinions and and our suggestions and things to make it work in America. Yeah. I'm trying I'm trying to think of the name of the game. It was based on a on a movie, a US movie that was very popular. It was a licensed movie and um now completely This isn't where Michael Jackson comes into the because Paul mentioned <laughs> earlier in our notes that you'd actually you, you actually had an amazing or you or a good a good a good Michael Jackson anecdote. But I think that's maybe that was Sonic focused, wasn't it, Paul? Yes. There was, yeah, I know you did actually end up meeting Michael Jackson, which um, uh -huh. I don't think it was about the Moonwalker game, but I think it no. was about his love of Sonic. Right. So tell us when Mr. Jackson came to call. Well, that was uh, a surprise. One day I get a phone call and uh, 
it's from someone from the corporate headquarters saying, hey, we have a, a request for you to visit or have a visitor come by, uh, which was something that we never did uh, because we were this kind of secret operation. But they, I said, well, who is it? And they said, well, it's Michael Jackson. And uh, he wanted to come by and just meet the Sonic team. Oh, that's cool. And, and as it turns out, uh, I said, well, sure, <laughs> come on. And uh, yeah. Uh, a couple days later, he he uh, uh, flies in on his plane and comes with his entourage <laughs> and uh, comes over to our building. And, and uh, basically, I set up to give him a tour of, uh, of the Sega Technical Institute and the uh, team, uh, uh, you know, the main team members all assembled in a conference room and showed him. Uh, what was coming? What was the next Sonic game going to be? Uh, kind of in drawings and and uh, uh, that sort of thing. And basically, Michael was his primary reason for being there was just to meet the team and say thank you because he absolutely loved Sonic the Hedgehog. Okay. He bought or had several um, uh, Sonic games in his home. And he's played them all until he can't even see straight, he said. <laughs> and he absolutely loved it. And he wanted to meet the team. And that was sort of the purpose of his visit. And while he's talking with the, uh, the team members, uh, we're, all, you know, we're all sitting in a conference room. One of the team members said, well, why don't you make the music for the next Sonic game? The one we're working on now. Right. And he, he thought about it for a moment and goes, okay. <laughs> and so right. what would normally take like you know, a few, several weeks and, and attorneys and agents, you know, to negotiate a deal like that. Uh, it was done <laughs> in about 30 seconds. So my, my, my sonic knowledge is extremely limited. Is that something that actually went ahead and transpired or, or was it just... Well, I think it would have done, wouldn't it, Roger? But then uh, he did. He did apparently do all the all the work. You've actually heard a CD of it. He did. You? Yes. Yeah. This would be Sonic Three. This is Sonic Three. It's the sound. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He did all the music for Sonic Three. We, Got it. We we had a series of uh, uh, meetings uh, to go over. You know what's in the game and what did we think would be good in the music. And then he he uh, went away and and came back with a complete soundtrack of uh, uh you know of, of music game music that had both a traditional sonic the hedgehog sound and a traditional um, uh, michael jackson sound he blended that right. which was i thought that was amazing i was just worried that he that when he'd asked to come it was bring your child to work day but thankfully <laughs> thankfully that was not the case <laughs> But that is. Do you want to be starting something, mate? Seriously, isn't it? Is that he'd done all this work for you, Roger? Which was an amazing, you know, coup for you. And then the story breaks about um, allegations of, of, you know, interference. That's exactly right. We we were just a few weeks away before the uh, the release of the Christmas Sonic Three, and and it's just definitely not an involvement you want at that point, is it? At that moment, that just completely uh, changed everything. It had been held as yeah. a secret, and it was going to be a surprise. And unfortunately, it it just had to go away. So yeah. I was told by by you know the corporate management <laughs> that no, we got to take all the all the uh, Michael Jackson music out and replace it with something else. And this is at the last minute, isn't it? This is oh yeah, oh yeah. This 
this <laughs> fortunately I had a really really uh, good talented uh, musical composer that was on our staff and had done a lot of uh i mean really quite a lot of really good game music and i i asked him i said uh, i need you <laughs> i need you to step in and take over uh, and replace all the michael jackson stuff which would have been no pressure a couple of yeah. <laughs> months of work but he only had a couple of you know like maybe a week and a half to do it so amazing yeah but he did get it done so it was uh, an amazing feat i actually know somebody who once played twister with Michael Sorry, Jackson, that sounds, but that's that's a lawsuit. That's, that's, <laughs> I just thought I'd drop that one in. Um, I want to bring it back to a focus on arcade games. Yes, like they were. You know, in the mid nineties, Sega was really leading the way. Roger with you know Virtua yeah. Fighter and you know Daytona things. I just you know was it a bit like being Atari in the late seventies, early eighties when they were leading the way? Did you feel that look, I'm I'm part of a company now that again is breaking new ground in in that field? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would definitely say that uh, Sega at that time was um, uh, very reminiscent of, of uh, you know, the way Atari had been. They had very strong talents and were given a lot of uh, leeway to make something be a lot of fun. And they had a great collection of games. So, yeah, I did, I did kind of feel that way. Roger, after leaving Sega... Um, shortly after the Saturn was released, you, you stayed in the industry and you later became president of Universal Studios Digital Arts and senior vice president of Namco Bandai. So a game still very much in your blood, Roger. <laughs> yes. Would it be fair to say? <laughs> no, very true. I've, I've actually, uh, there have been many different roles, essentially, that I've had to play, you know, but, but eventually... Uh, it's been it's been quite a ride, no doubt about it. The the universal thing was uh, a very different role. We did make games, but we also were mm. trying to help other established divisions of Universal become more connected to and adapted to technology. So that we were sort of a technological footprint in Silicon Valley for like Universal's movie group and Universal's TV group and their theme yeah, park group, sure. that sort yeah. of thing. So, so that that led to some very different kinds of projects and things. But uh, yes, that was very different. Yeah, and we, um, I mean, just bringing us right to the top. We also understand you attended the Atari 50th anniversary celebrations last year, Roger. What was it? What was it like meeting up with all your old buddies? Oh, that was great. <laughs> it was great. I don't know where yeah. they got all those old people, but, <laughs> but we, you know, it was um, uh, it was a delightful uh, afternoon sort of picnic in a park sort of environment. Yeah. So from the drafting table to the picnic table. Pretty much. Pretty much. It was the picnic table and, and uh, everyone went through the same or very similar experience. You know, they'd, they'd say, you look familiar. <laughs> Who are you? And, <laughs> right. and, and uh, we'd all exchange, uh, you know, we had to have name tags or else Aww. we wouldn't have known who was. Uh, <laughs> was it like Cocoon, but with video games? Yeah, it's kind of like that. But Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Roger. Nolan was there and Al Alcorn. And I mean, a lot of the people that I knew uh, were, were there. And it was uh, it was a great afternoon. A lot of fun. Sure. I'm assuming you were in the park. So I'm assuming you weren't actually playing any games together. 
No, no four-play games of Warlords or anything like that. No, no, not so much. There weren't any games on site, but uh, no, sure. Uh, we had a good time. Maybe some noughts and crosses. <laughs> or tic-tac-toe as it's known on your side go, of the pond yeah. or go yeah indeed uh roger thank you so much this has really been wonderful with um many many amazing anecdotes as we, we we say to all our guests it really is an honor to have you guys and girls mm-hmm. come on and speak to us and, and and tell your stories thank you so much you're you're very very welcome um it's it's been kind of fun. I hope you do. Kinda. I like kinda. Is that a qualifier? No, no. I, I just hope you do a lot of editing. That's all. No, it's honestly, it's, it's going to be good. I, I wanted to say not only thanks for sharing your story, but there was quite a few bits there where you were involved with some very important groundbreaking stuff, whether it's that just the whole idea of storyboarding a game which you couldn't not do these days. You know, you were there starting that. And, and I love the bit when you were explaining the idea of the Sente system, which, to be fair, Nolan usually gets most of the credit for. You know, that that was you back in the 70s. Um, I also love the line that you said that you wanted to keep the creativity going by installing a hot tub. So the campaign for a Ted Dabney experience hot tub Starts here, boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I d- just echo what Paul said, um, uh, Roger. I like the several bits of my new shy, including the connection of the Sente concept all the way back to that cabinet that you um, had a hand in in the in the mid seventies, which is something I, I I hadn't heard before. So it's it's always nice to be able to fill in a little bit more of the Sente story as we as we sort of go through these um, interviews. Thank you, Roger. Really great chat. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. Thank mm-hmm. you.